the best of Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, all three hours of today's program as we celebrate June, Black Music Month. Every day this, uh, this month, we have a different featured artist. Uh, and today, we are playing some of the best of Aretha Franklin on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. So glad to have you with us in this hour. And in this hour, uh, I think it's true that the more you understand someone's history, the better you can see their humanity. You've heard me say more than once on this program that I don't believe that any of us comes into our uh, into the fullness of our own humanity unless and until we can revel in the humanity of the other. And so it stands to reason then that the better you understand somebody else's history, the better you can see their humanity. In this hour, a conversation with Dr. Terrence Lester about his new book. It's called All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial Solidarity. He is the uh, founder and executive director of Love Beyond Walls, and I'm delighted to have him on for a conversation centered around his text that explores the sociological and cultural dynamics of unconscious bias and inattentional ignorance that contribute to the division in our society. Pleased to welcome Dr. Terrence Lester to this program. Dr. Lester, how are you today, sir? I am doing well, Tavis. How's it going? It's going well, man. If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am doing uh, remarkably well. Somebody once said I'm in pretty good shape for the shape that I'm in. So, so it's, a, it's been it's been a busy week around here. We just celebrated uh, our second anniversary uh, earlier this week uh, of KBLA Talk 1580. We are off and running in year three, but a lot of festivities this week, a lot of activity this week, new shows launching this week. So it's been a busy week here at KBLA Talk 1580. But I am uh, I'm 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 okay, and I'm glad to be in dialogue with you uh, for the hour uh, about this uh, uh, this uh, fascinating subject of. Uh, uh, of uh, racial solidarity and how confronting, again, buried history can help us in that regard. Uh, before I jump into the text itself, give me a bit about your backstory. I'm, I'm just trying to understand, I want the audience to better understand uh, how it is that you come to this subject matter by way of your, your work and your witness. Yeah. Uh, I am originally from Atlanta, Georgia. I've been here my entire life. And um I, I found myself uh, unhoused, actually, when I was 16 and a half years old. Uh, if you can imagine, I was going to high school while getting dressed out of the trunk of my car. And I would come in contact with many educators that would label me uh, for my houselessness, uh, not actually knowing that I was unhoused and sleeping in parks. And I would be put out of classrooms and educators would not really understand um, while I was falling asleep. I had one educator that told me in her English class, she told me that one day you will be in, end up in jail or uh, somewhat somewhere unproductive in life. I held on to those words, uh, Tavis. And uh, when I actually overcame uh, houselessness, uh, I started an organization dealing with the unhoused and uh, providing narrative justice for those who are unhoused. Um, uh, along the way, I started to recognize that uh, black Americans or black people actually make up 13 percent of the U.S. population. But we account for 50 percent of people who are experiencing homelessness in the U.S. And, uh, you know, traditionally, Sociologists would uh, posit that 
there are only two mass homelessness eras in the United States. They relegated to the Great Depression and what happens under the Reagan administration. But I argue that uh, houselessness or homelessness itself begins with Africans uh, being ripped away from their land, right, and brought to the New Americas, mm. uh, being unhoused. It, mm. it happens when uh, indigenous folks who were native to this land were displaced, right, by colonization. And I add that era. And then along this journey, Tavis, I started to see um, that the there was real parallels and intersections uh, related to classism and racism. Uh, to be poor in this country, as you stated in The Rich and the Rest of Us, there's 46 uh, million people who are living in poverty, but there are another 100 million people who are living near the poverty line. There's this criminal view of what it means to be poor. And while uh, to be poor is to have this narrative or this social framing to say that you are other, that you're less than, that you're lazy, that mm -hmm. you, I mean, you list all of the, the descriptions. Yes. I started to find that there's a parallel with how I was experiencing myself uh, uh, encountering whiteness in white spaces. And so uh, anytime I would go into, um, you know, white institutions uh, to give talks, there were times I would go in and I would be the keynote speaker and uh, white people wouldn't really understand that I was the person and I would be stereotyped and followed. Uh, it was one time I was, uh, invited to speak into a space about compassion <laughs> in a white space. And I was asked, did I belong here? And uh, when they were actually reading out my bio, Travis, two white persons were following me to the stage until they realized I was uh, the person who was there uh, speaking. For a talk about compassion. Yeah, while well, I talk about <laughs> compassion. And so while I was working with people who are unhoused, uh -huh. who are criminalized for not having anywhere to go, right. who are publicly sanitized, uh, who, who are viewed and feared because of their houselessness, I started to see also this parallel with how I was being perceived as a, as a black man in mm -hmm. this country. Yeah. And um, I started to realize that there is a, a narrative gap and a narrative um, uh, disconnect when it comes to people uh, from uh, the white community that really don't understand that to truly be in solidarity with uh, your black brothers and sisters, uh, you've got to be oh, cognitively yeah. proximate, okay. right? Yeah, I, I, I get yeah. it. Uh, we're going to spend the rest of this hour. Uh, I'm glad I asked that okay. question. I'm, I'm more grateful for the answer. We're going to spend the rest of this hour trying to fill in that narrative gap. I, I love that phrase, that phraseology, narrative gap. We're going to fill in that narrative gap over the next uh, 50 minutes or so. And leave it to Terrence Lester to, to, to start me off uh, early in the conversation. Uh, my mind working, uh, all kinds of questions. And he... he I love this framing. You know, y'all hear me say it all the time. Quoting my friend Connie Rice, get your frame right. Uh, Terrence Lester said something moments ago that I had never thought about. And I, I, as I say all the time, I love that, that every day when I walk out of this studio, I leave smarter than I came in. What you heard Dr. Terrence Lester say moments ago is that the original houselessness was bringing Africans to this country against their will. 
That's the original houselessness. You heard him reference our Native American brothers and sisters who were run off of their reservations. That is the original, original houselessness. My Angelo put it this way. We were stolen, bought and sold into slavery, are arriving on a nightmare, praying for a dream. That's our experience. I've never quite heard the connection between a conversation in a contemporary sense about houselessness and homelessness connected to the original houselessness and homelessness that Africans and Native Americans had to endure. I'm going to link these things up. Trust and believe. You're listening to Dr. Terrence Lester on KBLA Talk 1580. And so we will. We'll jump right to it. Uh, That is the Queen of Soul. Jump to it. Written by the late, great Luther Vandross for the Queen of Soul. Celebrating Aretha all three hours of our program today as we continue to celebrate June as Black Music Month. Hard not to have a hit when you put Luther and Aretha together. He's writing, she's performing, you end up with a hit. Like It's like one plus one equals two. Pretty basic, pretty pretty simple with that that kind of talent together on a project. Again, we celebrate the Queen of Soul all three hours of today's program on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Uh, our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. And we are in dialogue in this hour with Dr. Terrence Lester about his new book. It's called All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial Solidarity. Dr. Lester, let me get right back before we go forward. Let me go back to that brilliant comment, uh, that brilliant framing, to be more exact, uh, that you uh, that you advanced earlier in this conversation. This notion that the original houselessness, the original homelessness, if you will, was that uh, that was experienced by Africans, uh, our ancestors, by Native Americans. My question is, because I don't want to get too far afield, but I want to wrestle with this for just a second here. Um, my question is, why is it important to you? in the framing of a conversation in late modernity about houselessness, homelessness, why is it important to frame that uh, in connection to the original houselessness experienced once again by Africans and by Native Americans? Why is that framing so important for you? Yeah, it's it's important, Tavis, because uh, when I was doing my PhD research, uh, I studied sociologists, political scientists, and when they talked about the subject of homelessness, it was always in this general sense, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the two mass homelessness eras. Uh, you talk about uh, the five periods of homelessness, uh, whether it was, you know, uh, the, the vagrant period, the poorhouse period, the skid row period, the deinstitutionalization period, the, the chronic period that we see ourselves in. It was never about how Africans and black people in this country have suffered the brunt of what in the enslavement period did. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, even when you talk about the Great Depression, uh, you, we look at 1932 um uh, we are looking at the bonus army, which provided the first protest against homelessness and houselessness uh, in the United States, which were white World War One veterans. Mm-hmm. Well, where were black people? Right. Uh, we were facing Jim Crowism as a backlash uh, to the emancipation. We just celebrated Juneteenth, which the ratification happened uh, in 1868 which spurred on this uh, convict leasing, all of these things, and, and this Jim Crowism that was in response to our emancipation, right? And then you go into redlining, 
being excluded from owning land, being excluded from um, acquiring houses, which was federally mandated. These are public policies that excluded black people uh, after uh, enslavement from owning and possessing land. And today, when we see uh, mass homelessness in what they define as the second mass homelessness era, which is the chronic period, we start over the last 50 years to start to see uh, the criminalization of homelessness, where you can't stand in certain places. You can't sit in public places if you don't have an address. Uh, the state of Tennessee just passed a law that makes it a felony to sleep outside. And who does this hurt, Tavis? Mm. Um, uh, people who are black and brown, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's this criminal view using public policy to frame this narrative of who who is deserving to uh, to be in community and who is undeserving. And what I'm arguing, Tavis, is that we have to connect this to a deeper history to understand that this exclusion, this marginalization, and this uh, public sanitation has been happening to black people for hit, uh, for uh, for mm -hmm. centuries. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, it's it's a powerful framing, and I tell you, I. I uh, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, uh, and yet mm -hmm. <laughs> I find that every so often on this program, I, I have a different way of just seeing the world. You, you allow me to see uh, this uh, challenge through a, through a different prism. I say all the time that at our best on this program, on this station, we're challenging folk to reexamine the assumptions they hold and helping them to expand their inventory of ideas. And I'd never actually thought about that framing. It's hard to talk about houselessness and homelessness in real time without putting it in a larger context, a, a broader and bigger narrative about who was first houseless and who was first homeless in this country. Uh, and sadly, uh, the point he's making, I think you pick it up pretty clearly, is that the same folk who were housed, unhoused then are the same folk who are unhoused now. That narrative um, is that narrative gap <laughs> needs to be filled in, uh, and I'm glad that uh, Dr. Dr. Lester is allowing me to see it in a way that I've never quite processed it before. Uh, these same black folk, these same brown folk, these same red folk are the ones today uh, at the top of the list of those who are still experiencing houselessness and homelessness. I digress. Before I go forward, let me go back one more time, one more again, as we say, um, to your being 16 and, and being uh, unhoused yourself. Tell me quickly how that happened. At 16, how did you find yourself unhoused? Yeah. I remember the day I, I ran uh, away from home. Uh, I grew up in an environment that was, um, it wasn't, it wasn't safe for me. And so I found myself at a gas station begging for change one day. And uh, this guy walks out of the gas station. It was a, a late night. And he asked me what I was doing out there so late. And I asked him, could I have some change? Because I wanted to use a pay phone. There were, uh, cell phones weren't as accessible as they are now. He throws me two quarters to have this. One falls on the ground. The other one lands in my hand. I pick up the quarter and I call my friend named Eric. And I asked Eric on the phone if his family would, wouldn't mind if I came over because I, I was going to be sleeping in the park again. Uh, Eric comes back to the phone. He says, come on over. My family loves you. When I arrived there, Tavis, uh, Mr. Moore uh, came down the driveway and he tapped me on the chest. The first time I could ever look a black man in his eyes uh, with safety. And he told me one day that I would be a leader. Um, he was the first he was the person that I could go to and ask, should I marry my wife? Should I put myself through college? 
Um, he 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 allowed me to borrow strength, but greater than that, he gave me an example on how to see others who emerge from social locations who can relate to what I was going through as still being worthy. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, pretty much how I arrived here today. Yeah. No, I love that phrase, borrow strength. Uh, it resonates with me and I suspect many others listening because every now and again in our lives, we do, in fact, have to borrow strength. Uh, we're not always able to do it on our own. Uh, sometimes we borrow strength. And, um, I, again, uh, love that phrase, and, and, I, and I, I, I resonate with it. Um, we're talking in this hour with Dr. Lester Broadley uh, about this notion of how confronting buried history can help to build racial solidarity. Before I get to that specifically, uh, let me just get your take, uh, broadly speaking, on the, uh, the the lack of racial solidarity in the most multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic America ever. I think it is, uh, as, as one pastor said, that we're still living in the yet-to-be-United States. And I think um, what we are experiencing now is a war for the minds. Mm. Um, and what I, when I use that phraseology, I'm talking about states like Florida, right, that uh, has been, um, you know, hijacked of history, uh, so to speak, uh, libraries stripped of books that contain uh, powerful truths from black history, right? Uh, you have states like Texas and South Carolina and Utah and Missouri who are doing these massive book bans that contain parts of our history, which is reminiscent of, 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 of these, um, these codes that were developed, uh, to, to keep us ignorant of this truth and repair, uh, where we could, uh, know ourselves, but also be able to use that history, uh, not so that we would be ignorant, but so that we would be wise to continue to press forward, uh, with truth, justice, and love. And I think, that's what we are right now, and it's a, it's a shame, Tev. Yeah. You mentioned truth, justice, and love. Um, let me take those three, th- those three things in order that you, that you uh, referenced them. Um, what's, your, what's, your, what's your read on, on truth in our society these days or the lack thereof? It seems to me that the truth is what each of us determines it to be. <laughs> yeah, I think the truth has to be grounded in... Um, uh, data, reality, and facts. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that truth, we know what to repair, which provides that type of justice. Uh, uh, Dr. Cornell West says, "What well, justice is what lo- love is what justice looks like in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I say that phraseology right, but it's this notion that as we are telling the truth, we are also uh, providing this type of justice and repair where we are resistant to uh, laws that keep people from voting. We are resistant uh, to laws to demonize and criminalize those who are unhoused. We're resistant uh, to environmental racism uh, and some of the things that causes harm to people. As uh, uh, Reverend William Barber says, uh, there are over 700 people that die per day, not because God has called them home, but because they're living in poverty mm-hmm. in this country, mm-hmm. which yet, yet to be an issue that we really grapple with. And that justice orients us 
uh, to actually show up with love and solidarity. Yep. No, it's a powerful phrase. Um, uh, my friends, Michael Eric Dyson and Cornel West have both used it. Uh, it comes from uh, uh, actually it's Kingian to its core as in Dr. King, MLK it's Kingian, mm. Kingian at its core, but it's a powerful frame, a powerful phrase that justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Terrence Lester. His new book is called all God's children, how confronting buried history can help build racial solidarity when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports. We'll get right into the text on KBLA Talk 1580. The station you turn to when you've had it up to here with cultural incompetence. KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. Glad to have you tuned in to our program today. Uh, we're playing the best of Aretha Franklin all three hours today as we continue to celebrate June as Black Music Month. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Terrence Lester, author of a new book called All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial Solidarity. We have built a pretty solid foundation on which now I want to build this conversation. Uh, and I want to go straightway now into the book uh, and talk more expressly, more directly about how confronting buried history can help us build racial solidarity in this country. Dr. Lester, talk to me. Take it away, sir. Yeah, I think uh, to, you know, kind of take it back to what we were talking about, I think we really have to grapple with some of the historical things that are actually uh, still impacting uh, society today. Mm-hmm. And mainly, uh, I think black people, brown people, we know this history. Uh, but I think those who want to be in solidarity with us uh, from the white community have to grapple with uh, what uh, doctors uh, Mac suggests this inattentional ignorance or this inattentional blindness uh, that has has kind of reemerged even stronger today uh, to, to 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 disengage with the history that has impacted black and brown people and the history uh, that can t- continues to uh, impact us today. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the reasons I, I'm writing this book is because I'm arguing that uh, we can we can no longer continue to turn a blind eye to the things in which have in, in impacted our community and continues to impact our community. And we can't, we can't allow white supremacy to continue to uphold that ignorance. It seems to me that if the goal is racial solidarity, uh, you can't get to solidarity unless you go through empathy. And, and I, I, I want to just, can't. I, yeah, exactly. I want, I want to just interrogate you on that. Talk to me about how we get to solidarity if we live in a nation right now where people still lack empathy for the other. You heard me say earlier, I don't believe that we can come into the fullness of our own individual humanity unless we can revel in respect in the humanity of the other. That's another way of defining the word empathy. So how do you get to solidarity if you don't start with empathy? Oh, we have to start with empathy. And empathy can't come unless you are proximate, right? Mm -hmm. I think uh, one of the the threats or the enemies of belonging is distance and distance itself uh, creates this type of ignorance. Uh, um, Dr. Cosby says it's, it's both willful and woeful ignorance, right? Mm -hmm. You have the woeful ignorance where it's like, Oh, I I didn't know this. um, And it's kind of like the woe is me, but the willful ignorance 
comes through distance. It comes through social and political framing. It comes from being at a distance from the community that you say you want to stand in solidarity with. And I think it has to be developed. And the only way to develop empathy is to be in proximity to those that you want to be in relationship with. Uh, There's a quote uh, that's floating around online that says, uh, if you seek to be in solidarity or you claim to be in solidarity uh, with those that you want to say you're in solidarity with, but you haven't been hit by the stones that have been hurled at them, then you're not standing close enough. Mm. And that's what I'm arguing in this book mm-hmm. is that you, if you're claiming to uh, to be in solidarity or you're wanting to have empathy uh, and you haven't been hit by those stones, it's it's a sign. It's an invitation that you need to get more proximate. But let's take that. That's a powerful, powerful, powerful quote. Uh, let's take it and unpack it. Um, and the simple question is this, but who wants to get hit by a stone? <laughs> Uh, I think those who understand uh, the Kingian phraseology of a world house, Mm -hmm. uh, of the beloved community, Mm -hmm. of people who see themselves interconnected, interrelated, and interdependent of one another. When King uses this this phraseology, world house, he's saying the world is our address. Mm -hmm. That what I I do for you, I'm, I'm doing also for myself. And I think there there's a disconnect uh, in that we haven't seen um, or had that interconnected lens uh, to really build that type of comp- compassion where we see the world as our address. Yep. King talked, as you well know, also about uh, the fact that our destiny as uh, Americans is inextricably tied together, that our destiny is yes. inextricably linked together. Uh, I want to interrogate that for a second. Uh, Dr. King is my hero. This audience knows that. I regard him as the greatest American this country's ever produced. I've written a book about the last year of his life, so I'm, I'm, I'm a King student. Uh, and yet if King were here, as I often say, there are a number of things I'd interrogate him on. Just want to probe him on uh, to, to, to get more insight into his thinking. Uh, so when King says that our destiny as Americans is inextricably linked together, I think he's right about that. My question is whether or not Americans understand that. King was right about it, but I'm not so sure folk who don't have melanin in their skin understand and accept that our destiny as a nation is inextricably tied together. I would I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. And I would also agree with it uh in relationship to the the willful ignorance and the ignorance uh, that continues to be upheld by white uh, white supremacy. I would also argue that um, this embedded framing is so deep in whiteness um, that sometimes that ignorance itself creates the wall um, in between uh, the neighbors that they claim to love in church on Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. But they're not concerned with the uh, the neighborhood that the neighbor emerges from. Yeah. or even the issues that that neighborhood faces. And so I, I think that wall needs to be deconstructed. And we can't do that work as black people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that has to be uh, some work that they have to do on their own terms. Yeah. But the awareness piece, uh, the cognitive proximity, which I call cognitive justice, is not just being physically uh, close to someone. It's, it's really wrestling with this epistemic injustice where you only want to see people, but you don't want to hear them. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's this it's this notion where we are we're we're really getting proximate. And that that has to come through understanding of history. Like when I was growing up in my K through 12 experience, 
black history was not taught. Mm -hmm. But black history is a part of American history. And until we turn uh, our eyes towards that truth and really unpack that and sit with it and lament with people and be proximate with them and, and understand how that history is still continuing and per perpetuating cycles of injustice to, to this day, then we can't be in solidarity. Yeah. But the goal that King is arguing is that this is a hopeful goal. This is this is a compassionate goal, and this is a goal that we have, have to stay close to. Yeah. Uh, King uh, then says, though, that change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability. It ain't just going to happen. Uh, yeah. right. uh, somebody's got to be intentional about this. Uh, I'm thinking also, as you were talking about the words of Bill Clinton, uh, one of his famous lines, and he's right about this, I think, that racism is black America's burden, but it's white America's problem. Racism That's is right. black America's burden, but it's white America's problem. When we come forward with our guest, Dr. Terrence Lester, I want to talk more expressly about the notion of inattentional ignorance and what, if anything, can be done about that. And we haven't gotten to the issue of unconscious bias, which he also unpacks in his new book. It's called All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial Solidarity. You're listening to Dr. Terrence Lester right now on KBLA Talk 1580. Our guest is Dr. Terrence Lester, author of a new book called All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial Solidarity. Um, we were talking earlier, you were talking earlier about Dr. Lester, about inattentional ignorance. Um, what is to be done about that, if anything? I think uh, what we really need, Tavis, is uh, people who really are uh, continuing to advocate, as you said, that, you know, this isn't going to ha happen without any intentionality and strategy. Um, you know, I'm, uh, I, I consider myself as being a part of those, uh, in the tapestry of social justice and social change. And so, uh, while we are, uh, truth telling, uh, I think that those who really want to stand in solidarity, uh, with us have to bring attention to the fact that we need to honor and cherish black history. Um, when we talk about bias, uh, Patricia Hill Collins says racism doesn't just magically go away, mm -hmm. you know, just because we refuse to talk about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, racial language is then replaced with these covert uh, racial euphemisms, right? Um, and this coded language. And so, what I'm arguing is that we need to continue to speak truth and those who are white that wants to stand in solidarity uh, with black folks uh, need to understand our history, cherish our history and uh, center our history in a way that it doesn't become a napkin invited to a table. Mm, I like that. A napkin invited to a table. Um, the older I get, I, I confess, I confess here now, uh, uh, Dr. Lester, that the older I get, uh, the more I am seeing a blurred line, this is just my own assessment, the more I'm seeing a blurred yeah. line between what many call unconscious bias and what I would call willful ignorance. That line is getting more and more blurred for me between unconscious bias and willful ignorance. That is uh, my way of saying that I do, in fact, believe there are many fellow citizens who uh, engage or, 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 or are victimized by, if you will, unconscious bias uh but yes. again I, i'm trying to I'm, I'm 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 looking harder and harder i'm squinting i'm squinting more and more <laughs> try, trying to see where that line is between unconscious bias and just willful ignorance your thoughts yeah 
If I'm honest, Tavis, I, I agree. Uh, there are days when uh, I believe that those who are willfully ignorant are just the same as those who uh, say they are good meaning uh, but have unconscious bias. And I believe uh, sometimes that that belief uh, that black people and brown people are less than or, um, you know, welfare queens or criminal is so deeply embedded and upheld by white supremacy in, in the aesthetic of this country that uh, it, it, it does blur that line. And I think uh, what makes us conscious, though, uh, Tavis, as you stated earlier, is the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, justice is what love looks like in public. And some people have distanced themselves from that truth, and it needs to continue to knock at their door and be in, in their presence in a way where we can't allow history erasure uh, to replace black dignity. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Terrence Lester on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, his book is called All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial Solidarity. Uh, a number of questions coming at me from a variety of sources, uh, uh, thanks uh, to our social media platforms. Uh, Dr. Lester, I've asked this question of others, but I want to get your unique take on it. Uh, the difference or uh, in your use of the word houselessness versus homelessness some folk use them interchangeably some folk use them to mean two different things when you invoke houselessness and homelessness why the distinction for you or is there a distinction yeah there is a distinction uh there's a difference between a uh, home and homelessness right uh home itself uh signifies i think what ml king is describing as a beloved community is the intangible home a place where you feel seen where you belong and where you feel accepted homelessness by definition means uh a lack of a physical address the reason why i reframe uh homelessness and i use unhoused or someone experiencing homelessness because we can never label somebody or define them based upon a experience that they're having right and so uh, while this is true, uh, uh, public sanitation that is happening all across the country is threatening, threatening both home, right, the, the ability to belong to a community and uh, the existence of those who are, who are unhoused. And I think we need uh, to reframe our language when we talk about uh, those who are unhoused. You know, it, it really uh, does my heart uh, so much. Uh, well, it burdens my heart, really, when I hear people just call someone a homeless person, mm. because homelessness is an issue uh, that you can be labeled uh, for something that you don't have and then punished for trying to survive it. Right. Uh, if I didn't have a truck to have as you wouldn't call me truckless. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I didn't have a suit, you wouldn't call me suitless. And so we got to really uh, think about the language that we use in, in describing uh, those who are also a part of the beloved community. Once again, you can get your frame right, get your frame right. Powerful framing. Um, thank you for the answer. Uh, i got about three minutes left. Let me close with this. I want to go uh, back to uh, another issue that you raised earlier in our dialogue. And I think you're right about this, that what we are experiencing in, in real time uh, is a war for the minds 
of everyday people, a war for the minds of fellow citizens. How do you see um, that war unfolding? And more to the point, how do we win that war for the minds? Uh, in short, Tavis, I think we need to continue to speak truth to power, uh, that we need to educate um, uh, uh, not only our community, but our children. I think the talk itself has to extend beyond um, just talking about law enforcement, where it has to be all-encompassing. When I talk to my black children, I'm talking to them about uh, their their black excellence, our history um, that, uh, you know, predates the enslavement period. I'm, I'm speaking to their very existence. And then we need to create uh, uh, segues and opportunities for black people and people who want to know black history to be educated outside of the school system because the way that we are uh, seeing things happen now this this co-opting of the word woke, which is uh, really was a woe to, to mean that we need to wake up to the injustices that we see all around us, is is attacking books that have our history at the center and the core of them. And we need to um, reclaim that in a way that we preserve our narrative, yep. as my grandma would say. Dr. Terrence Lester puts his money where his mouth is. Uh, in 2016, he led the March Against Poverty, where he walked from Atlanta uh, the SCLC headquarters, founded by Dr. King, of course, all the way to the White House, over 800 miles he walked to bring attention to the issue of houselessness in this country. I could have spent this hour talking about the three ideals that animate and drive his work and witness. One, that anyone can make a difference. Two, that we do not live forever. And three, that it is worth dedicating that life to ensuring that no one feels invisible. We've been talking this hour about the truth. And I believe it is the telling of truth that allows the suffering to speak. And so if you speak the truth, mm. then those who are in pain are not rendered invisible. I digress. His book is called All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial Solidarity. Dr. Lester, thank you for your work, for your witness, and for this text. And today, thank you for this conversation. We love you and appreciate you, sir. Thank you so much, Tavis. All the best to you. Hour three of Tavis Smiley, after news, traffic, and sports, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580.